evidence and answers. We've all heard the phrase, why would God allow evil in this world? Or perhaps, why did God allow this horrible disaster to take place? Did God do it? What about the evil that we hear of and see on the news daily? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. If you're unable to hear any of this broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, Here's our host, Dr. Pat Zucran, with part one of Evil Unmasked. We are exploring God and evil. This has to be one of the most popular questions that people ask. And it's always good when Pat Zucran has a special guest, because Pat, you always bring on some good ones. That's right. We have with us this week, Dr. Ramesh Richard, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and also president of Reach International, a ministry designed to equip leaders in different countries throughout the world. Uh, Dr. Ramesh Richard, PhD from Dallas Theological Seminary and a PhD from the University of New Delhi in India. He is an author and a popular speaker. And uh, Dr. Richard, welcome to the show. Greetings. Uh, Good to be here, Pat and and Kevin. Um, I know that God is using your programs uh, significantly, especially in fortifying people who uh, perhaps have deeper questions than normally I asked or answered in churches. So I'm grateful for the privilege of being here. Right. And Dr. Richard not only speaks internationally, he has also studied internationally. So he comes with a great deal of knowledge from different parts of the world, understanding different worldviews and perspectives. But we're talking about the problem of God and evil, uh, Dr. Richard. First question I want to ask you is, how do people from the different worldviews address the problem of evil? Let's look first at the pantheists, those from the Buddhist or the Hindu religion. How do they address the problem of evil and suffering? Uh, the issue of evil is uh, stark and hard, and it's probably the most asked question in the world today. And uh, The second question would be uh, whether Christians, Jews, and Muslims worship the same God, and then all that goes on. But as you've just indicated and intimated, uh, Pat, uh, everything flows off uh, a view of reality. Uh, In fact, our entire epistemological base of uh, how we come to know and what we do indeed know and certify and accept comes from a worldview uh, set of glasses. You've uh, talked about uh, pantheism or Buddhism and Hinduism. Uh, Most of our listeners would know that uh, pantheism is a particular way of uh, groping and grasping reality. If everything participates or partakes of the one ultimate reality, then the distinctions between good and evil become irrelevant. In fact, it's illusory. There are about six schools of philosophy inside the Indian context, one of which... um, uh, gropes and again uh, grasps reality like uh, like Christians do in uh, what's called a personalist tradition, but the, the general monistic tradition will downplay the distinction between good and evil simply as illusion, or a secondary school they'll call it a- apparent illusion. Um, the reality is only apparent to us; it's not fully uh, an illusion, but it's apparently so. That's really interesting. So they don't really. Uh it's, it's really difficult to really address the problem of evil if it's simply seen as an illusion, isn't it? That's correct. Uh, philosophically, they are very astute and can interact with us because you can always spin theories and, and uh, 
we've unfalsifiable and but the verifiability criterion affects them very deeply because existentially they deal with evil uh, they weep over those who've died they uh, get into accidents and and uh, they have to uh, attempt to interpret w what is happening all over uh, around them and and uh, they get angry they seek justice they pursue consequence of choices and so while it's a good noise making pantheistic position it really is not something that can be uh, discussed or uh, proposed or argued dr richards do, do you think it's a good philosophical uh, tact to use to say if if all is an illusion then you must have some idea of what is reality in other words in order to say what is an illusion you have to say this is reality and provide reality as kind of a backdrop for what we would compare uh, and call something an illusion. Therefore, all is not an illusion. Right. Uh, especially that statement that all is an illusion. It's yeah. called a self-accepting fallacy or self-referential exception. But usually when we talk to people like these, and I believe that we want to take a, a more strategic, practical uh, approach in this, in this uh, set of questions today and in the interview today, you really do not approach them philosophically. You uh, approach them existentially. And and I'm going to suggest that existential apologetics is extremely uh, critical and useful uh, and better understood by uh, that a set of uh, questions. Hmm. What do you mean by existential apologetics? Explain that for us. Okay, theoretical apologetics are the traditional questions that we're talking about. God and evil, does God exist? You know, uh, does God uh, do miracles and so on? Existential apologetics uh, works on the obverse side, not only simply God and evil, but how evil affects you. And you start mm -hmm. there as a platform to... Uh, to um, make comments, build bridges, and then perhaps introduce Christ. I have actually finished a manuscript, Pat, that you'll uh, probably like. It's called Cross-Cultural Apologetics and Worldview Evangelism, uh, Kevin. And the first step, I propose a four-step apologetic method. The first step is what I call the apologetic of life, which takes uh, an existential view of reality, not in this philosophical connotation of existentialism, but a way of being human is what I mean by existential. Uh, they are human, we are human, they are first humans rather than Hindus, they're first humans rather than pantheists, they're first humans rather than Buddhists, and it's at the level of humanness that we approach them and ask them uh, the questions, present the good news, and perhaps eventually uh, invite them to embrace Christ. Well, we talked about how the pantheist addresses the problem of evil and suffering. How about the atheists? How do they address the issue? Uh, the atheists have uh, far more significant problems than the pantheists because they have this internal um, impulse to have to defend uh, the necessity of the non-existence of God. Um, I was supposed to have lunch uh, yesterday with a very fine uh, combative and, uh, and recently uh, better known and extremely abrasive atheist, but he didn't show up for, for his uh, appointment. I'm wondering why he didn't show up. Mm -hmm. But uh, the atheist, atheist has a real problem of calling anything evil at all. Uh, I'm sure you considered some of this in your last program. Uh, I was with a Hungarian atheist uh, on, a, on a flight and um, uh, self-proclaimed, quite uh, assertive. As we began to talk, uh, his, his uh, introduction about his uh, commitments was atheism. And I said, why are you atheist? And he brought up this particular issue of all evil in the world. 
And I said, what do you mean by all the evil in the world? He said, well, isn't catching babies at the end of bayonets evil? I said, yes, it's certainly evil, uh, but why do you call it evil? So what? I said, uh, why do you, as an atheist, call catching babies at the end of bayonets evil? He thought for a moment. He said, I'm not uh, fully considered it, but what are you getting at? And the usual moral argument that uh, you and I use in conversation with atheists became an opportunity for me to pursue while he was uh, looking for an answer. I said, sir, you know, if you want to call that evil, you've assumed a standard of good. And if you think it's ultimately evil, you have a standard of ultimately good. And whatever you call ultimately good roughly equi- uh, equals what, what I refer to as God. So an atheist is really in a harder position, uh, not only of explaining evil, of even explaining good. So uh, why is there anything at all? Why is there this kind of anything at all? Right. So uh, Christianity really you know, offers the best or addresses the issue, uh, I believe, in the best in regards to reality and also experientially, you know, the problem of evil and suffering. But it's also a difficult question for Christians. But as you mentioned, evil reveals a lot about who we are as uh, human beings and also reveals a lot about God. So tell us, what does evil tell us about who man is? Um Pat, if, if contrast is the uh, mother of all distinction, I would like to suggest that uh, in unmasking the mystery of evil, that we don't look for absolute certain answers right now, but I think we can approach it from the way that we can show it's not a contradiction, that you can actually see the outlines of an answer emerge right now, which is a guarantee of a future answer that's, that's absolute and final. The way I'm going about in this particular uh, interview is to show how human beings, um, because we're human beings, we have a particular set of questions we ask. Why is there evil in the world? Or, you know, is there hope in the future? Uh, how come a good God and a powerful God and all-knowing and all-loving God would, uh, how come he, w- he would allow evil at all? So I usually distinguish human beings from five other constituents of reality in order to accentuate the fact that evil unmasks who human beings are. Uh, we can uh, look at a couple right now and then perhaps uh, um, in a bit uh, the, the other uh, constituents of reality. First, human beings are not animals. Actually, it's evil who shows us, uh, which shows us that, that we are not animals. How do I go about that? Animals, uh, sometimes you act like an animal, but you're not an animal. Uh, mm-hmm. Animals have the, uh, the privilege of experiencing evil, but not processing evil. Human beings uh, are different from animals. I've had a hobby, philosophical hobby, of collecting distinction between humans and animals. One of the issues would be the issue of self-identity. You know, an animal does not look in a mirror and say his hair is not combed or does not have his cosmetics on. Um, a human being uh, has this uh, uh, terrific privilege of self-identity. So on a race course, uh, if a horse breaks his leg, we put him out. But if a jockey breaks his leg, we try to rush an ambulance to him because here's a jockey who has another self-identity which interacts with my self-identity and the others who watch him and we want to rescue him. Another way human beings are different from animals is what we call uh, accumulated knowledge. Um, animals don't have the privilege of accumulated knowledge. They don't go to libraries or archives. They don't go to, uh, you know, the city center to find out who their father was and grandfather was and great-grandfather was. Uh, 
In fact, animals have to learn everything from the start. They don't have the great books of the modern animal world like we have the great books of the modern Western world or whatever. So uh, while we can build on knowledge, you know, we have Pentium 3s and 4s, and they've just upgraded my computer to Centrinos, um, we have accumulated knowledge. We can get faster, farther, deeper, but animals don't have that privilege. Yes, we're with Dr. Ramesh Richard. He is a philosopher, theologian, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, and we're talking about the problem of God and evil and what evil reveals about man. And you went over a couple points, Dr. Richard, that humans are not animals because we have self-identity and accumulative knowledge. What else distinguishes us from the animal world? Oh, the other one is the privilege of abstract, logical, rational thought, because we have the privilege of what is called the reflection or the language gene. I was with the chair of uh, biogenetics, actually bioinformatics of uh, University of Southern California on a flight. He was uh, also the chair of uh, bioinformatics for Oxford University. Uh, they were raising some money for mapping the human genome, as you, as you well know. And as we were visiting, I said, sir, you've just finished mapping the human genome, which by the time they said was 100,000 uh, in the human uh, genome map. I asked him, is it really true that almost 99% of the genetic map we share with the animals. He immediately brightened up and said, that's really true. And then he said, I'm completely mystified as to why that 1% makes such a huge difference between human beings and animals. Now, in the last couple of days, they've actually revised the number of genes down to 20 to 25,000 such in the human genome. And they say puffer fish actually have 20 to 25,000 genes. Now, there's something different between us and puffer fish. It's a privilege of reflection. They've just discovered what is called the language gene. The language gene allows us a, a, a higher and abstract degree of communication and deduction, induction, and thought, which animals do not. Animals can work out of instinct. They can communicate, but they cannot reflect. Now, in that very place and position, um, Kevin and Pat, I place the status of evil. It's, it's human beings who ask what is evil? What uh, is the status of evil? What is the ground and ontology of, of evil? And as you probably said last time, uh, evil is uh, not an independent entity. It is not a thing in itself. It is only uh, on the uh, ground and context and the framework of good that we evaluate evil. Just like deafness or darkness is... Uh, is evaluated parasitically in the context of uh, the sound and light and, and so on. Evil does not have an entity in itself. So you can't say that good and evil are equal. That's yeah. correct. That will be a dualistic view and it will be an eternal view, good and evil. Because then what would good. be good and what would be evil if they're both exactly That's evil. correct. And yeah. we would need another standard beyond good and evil in order to distinguish what is good and evil. Right. But evil is only there uh, as... Uh, something that clings on to the good. If you take out the evil, you have all good. But if you take off all the good, there is no such thing as evil. That has implications for what God created, right? If uh, God created only good, he could not create evil. And if evil is not thing in itself, God did not create anything that is uh, an absolute reality as evil, the only contingent realities of evil. So uh, I put the power of reflection there. Animals cannot reflect, human beings can reflect. That's why uh, we are bothered by the question. Mm. Yes, and what does evil teach us um, as far as the difference between, you know, the way we address 
or react to evil and suffering compared to the animal world? Uh, an animal will undergo evil. Uh, there has been studies of lemming behavior, for instance, uh, because of groupthink. And by the way, anytime we are in a groupthink reacting like animals, uh, they jump off cliffs into the ocean, take their lives. Um, they don't wonder about what good will come out of a particular evil situation. You and I, especially those of a more optimistic temperament, and especially those who do believe in God, who know that God can turn evil into good, uh, are able to hope for um, our theistic, all-intervening, powerful God to be able to turn evil into good. An animal will not anticipate that. Mm. Yes, and how does evil then distinguish human beings from machines? Good. If um, animals don't experience intellectual pain, machines don't experience what we call moral pain. Now, sometimes you feel like a machine because you're caught in an organizational structure and you're suffering through it. Some of you may actually feel like a cog in the cosmic machine, as the phrase goes. But you and I are not machines. Machines um, are only as good as their last programming. You know, a human being um, can choose against bad options, but a machine cannot choose against a bad option if it's only programmed to pursue the bad. So if a machine is programmed by the ethical priority of the creator or the user to pursue bad options, it can't choose against it. Now, work on it the other way. If a machine is only programmed to do, choose good options, it can't choose against a good option if it's only programmed to, to pursue a good option. You know, sometimes people are startled by the fact when I say uh, human beings are superior to machines because they say, hey, you know, remember Gary Kasparov, the uh, Russian chess master genius mm-hmm. who, who uh, you know, fought a chess uh, series with IBM's Deep Blue and Deep Blue Junior and lost. You know, that shows that uh, machines are better than human beings. Actually, that's a very easy question to answer because um, we had a huge group of brilliant chess masters who studied every one of Gary Kasparov's moves throughout all his playing history and program IBM's Deep Blue and Deep Blue Junior. It, all that it shows is that a group of highly brilliant uh, chess playing grandmasters uh, with a computer are better than uh, uh, one s- a single grandmaster uh, without a computer. Um Another thing machines do, machines don't have independent existence. They're not independently valuable. Some time ago, I got upgraded on an American Airlines flight from New York to Dallas, and I had one of these Palm Pilots. Uh, I was working on on the flight uh, throughout the whole thing. When we landed in Dallas, I left my book and my Palm Pilot in the first uh, row, went to the fourth row to pick up my bags when I walked out. Somebody had taken my Palm Pilot and left. The most amazing thing, on the first class of an airline, that shows something else about human beings, but we won't (laughs) talk about that. Mm. Now, while I felt sad for having lost this Palm Pilot, I had actually backed up the information. And all I needed was to find another Palm Pilot to uh, download the information and have it working again. But if we lose a human being... It's not simply, uh, you know, the loss of information. We are losing a human being with whom we related, with whom uh, we fought, we joked with, we loved, and, and uh, th- that's a great degree of s- sadness. So if machines don't have moral pain, then that helps us understand how evil got started and the origin of evil, which you told me, Pat, that you talked about last time in a free will theodicy. 
Freedom makes evil possible, but never makes evil necessary. Mm-hmm. So, a good Boeing plane, which was hijacked by a group of terrorists, uh, flying these two aluminum tubes at 600 miles an hour, ba- you know, bashing into two tall uh, concrete tubes and killing 3,000 people, nobody calls into question the manufacturer of the Boeing plane, not even the pilot error uh, is being considered because, you know, somebody else has hijacked this good thing called freedom and used it for bad uh, purposes. And that's where we place the cause and the origin of all evil. God created a good product. Uh, The manufacturer does not have to be the culpable, blameworthy cause. Actually, some people say, you know, why didn't God uh, completely disallow the possibility of evil. You're yeah. basically saying, why didn't God make me a machine? Yeah. Question I get all the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're really revealing that uh, really evil shows really that we are a special creation upon this uh, planet here. Dr. Richard, something that comes up quite often when it comes to God and evil is something called a euthyphro's dilemma that people ask. And uh, that is, uh, is something evil because God says that it's evil or uh, does God say it's evil because it is evil? Now, neither one of those options is good for the Christian because the first one, uh, if God just says that it's evil, then it's arbitrary, so to speak, and he could say that rape was good, and that's crazy. Or if he says something is, is good because it is good, then that means there's something higher than him that he's pointing to, and therefore something more ultimate than God. How do we get out of that? That's correct, and and that is a, a fair question because Burton Russell uh, used it as an argument against uh, the Christian faith. Is God arbitrary in calling something evil or good in all terms of morality? Or, or is good and morality above God? Well, the way we handle it is that the very nature of God is good. We do not separate morality from God. Since God is good in his very nature, good is not above him. And it's not below him. So um, the question is a fair question, but it arbitrarily divides God from his nature and his nature from morality itself. If there is no choices, then there couldn't be consequences. Uh, The whole theory of reincarnation, on the surface, it looks very, very good. It seems to be very just. Whatever you sow, you shall reap. But if you think of it further, person who reaps is not the same self-identity as the person who sows. So let's say when Hitler died in 1945, he was born as a, a quadriplegic in, uh, in Burma, uh, in the Sharma family because of bad karma. And uh, this uh, kid, Sharma, asks why he is a quadriplegic, and they tell him it's because you were Hitler in the last life, in your pre-incarnate status. And uh, little Sharma says, why am I born in the Sharma family because of karma in Rangoon, Burma? Because I was Hitler in the last life. If Hitler was the one who committed these six million murders, he needs to be the one who reaps the sowing, not me, who doesn't recognize any relationship with Hitler at all. Once again, our time has come to a close. Be sure to join us next time for the continuation of this exciting show. If you find this broadcast to be of great value to you, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website 
That's evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your family, friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Yeah.